Recorded live. Hello, praise Yahweh, and welcome to Krista getting here on Talk Show. This is William Sink. It is Friday, April, Friday, March 30th, 2012. I, um, I've never professed to be the calendar guy, right? I don't like trying to keep track of the calendar and, and dealing with all the petty little arguments that go with... Um, what with all the different various interpretations over calculating the calendar, and, and that's why Paul of Tarsus told us, let no man judge you concerning feast days and new moons and Sabbaths, because even at that time, and that's evident from the Gospel account, there was dispute over the calendar. It, because the Jews weren't, the, the, the Pharisees in the temple at Judea weren't keeping the Old Testament calendar properly. And, and that's very clear from the Gospel accounts because the day that Christ celebrated his Passover on and the date of Passover that he, he was crucified on were two different days. And there's absolutely no indication whatsoever in the Scripture that the, um, that the, that the, the disciples in Christ celebrated Passover on a different day other than the day that they actually believed was Passover. It, it's very clear that it were two separate calendars and, and that the Pharisees were not using the proper calendar in, in the Gospel account. There, there's no refutation of that whatsoever in the Gospel account, that no matter what certain people may think. The, the, um, uh, on the Christogenia Forum, I have a section called, um, it's forum.christogenia.org, just in case anybody needs to know, I have a section called Feasts and Calendar Issues. It's about halfway down the main page at the bottom of the second section under Biblical Studies. I put it there last weekend after my programs, or maybe early this week, I forget. And I did that purposely because a lot of people are inquiring about the Passover date, and I am not really the calendar guy. I mean, yeah, I could sit and calculate the Passover date. It's really not that hard. It's it's right in um, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and, and you, you read the accounts and sit and look at the new moon and count the days. I, I mean, that's not too difficult. But but um, Ken Lent has been doing this for a long time, and, and I like Ken, and, and I basically, you know, I understand that no calendar that any man comes up with it is going to be perfect, and, and Ken might disagree with me over that, but, but I, I could argue my point rather effectively. Well, well um, Ken, I, I defer to him on calendar issues and trust his judgment, and because it really isn't that important to me personally whether we have the exact day or not, because there's always going to be an argument over how to calculate the day. And even though we might get some days right, and some of them are easier than others to discern, some of the um, the wording is ambiguous, and, and some of the wording seems to be in conflict from different perspectives. So, so you could always throw a monkey wrench in, in any argument or, or any um, fail-safe rendition of the Hebrew calendar. But But I trust Ken's judgment. So his Passover date is um that the it it would start 
on the evening of our April 2nd it is when he reckons the Passover for this year. And that's fine with me. So, so as far as I'm concerned, that's when the Passover is. It starts on the evening of our April 2nd, in case anybody has to know. And, and that's on the, um, the Christogenia Forum under Feasts and Calendar Issues. There's one post from me giving my opinion on calendar matters, just in case anybody has that question. And then there's three posts from Ken Lent, and, and I read them, and, and they're fair. They're pretty good, to, or, or at least fa- fairly accurate, right? We will have disputes over the calendar until... Um, until the return of Christ and the institute of God's kingdom on earth. That, that's the way it is, the, the reckoning of man and, and the, the general language that's very misunderstood that's, that's in the Bible concerning the way certain things are done. And, and since we've lost a lot of the cultural context, we, we can't really decipher some things are difficult. So, so that's my opinion of the Passover and the calendar. Last week here I presented um, the preponderance of my arguments for the authenticity of 2 Peter. I don't have anything to add to that here, but I do want to discuss just one thing in, in retrospect. One point I made last week that was that Peter's use of the hendiotis, the hendiotis is a grammatical construction what, which indicates that two nouns connected by a conjunction in a Greek sentence definitely refer to one subject, right? And sometimes when nouns are strung by conjunctions, like and or but, we can see that um, through the grammatical construction in a way the definite article is used, that they do not refer to the same subject. Well, when, it's, when the construction is a hendiotis, we can be sure that they do refer to the same subject. And Peter uses that hendiotis, and um, he uses it in the opening verses of his epistle in order to demonstrate his conviction that Christ is God. God come in the flesh, the, the spirit of God in the body of a man. For that reason, in recognizing the hendiotis for what it is, and we should because that's proper Greek grammar, right? We, we shouldn't read our feelings into what the Greek says as most... Um, mainstream church sects do, uh, I translate the opening lines of Peter's second epistle thusly. Simeon or or Simeon Petrus, servant and ambassador of Yahshua Christ, to those who have obtained by fate with us an equally valued faith, and as I discussed, that proves that he was writing not to the circumcision, but to the uncircumcision, and the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yahshua Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is saying, that Jesus Christ is God and Savior. Favor to you and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of our God and Prince or Lord, Yahshua. And the terms God and Lord, or God and Prince, Theos and Kurios, at the end of the second verse, that is also a hendiotis, and both terms indeed apply to Christ. That is what Peter is stating in his use of the Greek construction, which he employed in his letter. He's making that statement. It's in the Greek. It's built into the language. And, 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 and we could argue it in English, and it was argued in Greek. 
that you you had men by the third, fourth century that that were arguing it in Greek, and and what I'm talking about this for is because um, well, well, interesting, interestingly, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over myself. Interestingly, one of the earliest Christian writers who recognized the authenticity of the epistle to Peter what was Hippolytus that we have on record, right? Surely men before Hippolytus also must have recognized the authenticity of the epistle, or, or it wouldn't have survived to his time because Hippolytus was born in 170 AD, right? And, and lived until, I think, about 236. Well, well verifying a, a note that I had for tonight's program and browsing through parts of Hippolytus in, in the Ante Nicene Fathers, which is the, the, um, the volumes of the writings of all the early Christian bishops and prominent Christian writers. While I was preparing for this program this morning, I came across this from Book 10, Chapter 30 of Hippolytus's work called A Refutation of All Heresies. Now, that's an ambitious title, isn't it? Well, which is the concluding chapter of this part of his work. And he says, For Christ is the God above all, and he has arranged to wash away sin from mankind. In my opinion, it is no wonder that at least some of the early and more Catholic-minded of the Nicene-era Christian writers were at odds with Hippolytus, and they were at odds with two Peter. And, and what's, um, you know, studying the titles for Christ and the way he's addressed in the epistles, and especially in Paul's epistles, there are also many more um, uses of the Hendiatus in, in reference to God and Christ, which identify Christ as God. And that's um, something that's not often discussed from what I've seen in, in reference to the arguments over the divinity of Christ. With this, I'll start 2 Peter chapter 2. We won't get to chapter 3 tonight. Um, I plan on doing it next week. I didn't want to rush it. And there's plenty of material here for a program just in Chapter 2. I probably could have added a lot more, honestly. Verse 1. Now there were also false prophets among the people. And even among you there shall be false teachers who shall introduce destructive systems of philosophy, even denying the master who has bought them, bringing upon themselves quick destruction, and many shall follow in their licentiousness, because of whom the way of truth shall be blasphemed. And with greediness they shall make profit from you. With fictitious words, for whom from of old their judgment is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. This statement of Peter's may seem on the surface to be oriented towards a universalist type of thinking, and, and I'll explain, where it can be imagined that Peter is saying that Christ purchased the false prophets with his blood, and therefore the false prophets also may be redeemed. But that is not really the case Peter is making. Rather, Peter states, from of, from of old, their judgment is not 
idol, as the destruction of the ungodly had been ordained long before time. Peter is discussing the body of the people as a whole, who have always had false prophets among them. The false prophets in wolves in sheep's clothing in Peter's day, and Paul is faced with this all the time in his missionary trips and his establishment of various ecclesia, various assemblies in diverse places. The false prophets in wolves in sheep's clothing are apparently Israel. They claim to be Israel, but they are not truly Israel. And therefore, their judgment is ordained from of old, denying the master. They must be tares and not wheat. The problem of the wheat and the tares isn't for the end. It's only at the end that the wheat and the tares are readily evident. The problem with the wheat and the tares, as outlined in the parable, started at the beginning, not at the end. And, and, and so in Peter's own time, you had many um, false prophets among the people. An examination of the Old Testament shows that because the children of Israel did not remove all of the Canaanites as they were commanded, Canaanites were to be pricks in their eyes and thorns in their sides. That these pricks were always able in one way or another to infiltrate and to corrupt the people of the nation is also quite evident in Scripture especially in the prophets such as Jeremiah and, and, and Ezekiel, where, where the pricks are readily identified. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we see the, the problem with the kingdom is race mixing. The only people there to race mix with were the Hittites and the Canaanites. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel admonishes the people of Jerusalem for having mixed with the Hittites and the Canaanites, in, in rather poetic language, where he says, your, 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 my birth and nativity is of the land of Canaan, and, and your mother is a Hittite, and your father is an Amorite, or, or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. So, so we see that, that, that this infiltration has always been there right from the beginning, and it's quite evident in the Scripture, and especially in those prophets. Peter is recognizing that, as Christ has told us, it is the gospel which must separate the wheat from the tares. It's the word of God. It's the messengers of God which separate the wheat from the tares. And at one time, it certainly did. It still should do so today. Likewise, as long, as the time of, as long ago as the time of Daniel, upon finding out the two priests who attempted to use their positions of authority in order to corrupt a young woman, the prophet Daniel proclaimed at Susanna, verse 56, O thou seed of Canaan and not of Judah, beauty has deceived thee and has lust has perverted thine heart. Peter is telling us how to identify the infiltrators, those who do not acknowledge the word of God, but who teach another gospel, are false prophets. And false prophets come as infiltrators from the camp of the enemy, from the enemies of our God. Yet we must be careful to understand that Peter is talking about the deceivers and not merely the deceived, because their numbers are much greater, right?
The words of Jude help to clarify for us Peter's intention here, where he states in his epistle in verses 3 and 4, and this is Jude 3, Beloved, making all haste to write to you concerning our common salvation, I had necessity to write to you encouraging you to contend once and for all for the faith having been delivered to the saints. For some men have stolen in. Those men never had the opportunity to be saints, right? For some men have stolen in those of old, having been written about before time for this judgment, which is just what we saw Peter say. Godless men, Yahweh is not their father, Yahweh is not their God, substituting the favor of our God for licentiousness, deceiving the sheep with lust, and denying our only master and prince, Yahshua Christ. The, 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 the epistle of Jude it is very closely paralleled with the epistle of Peter. That they, they have almost the same subject matter, and, and they say it in slightly different ways. The Apostle John said much the same thing in a totally different way in his first epistle where he states in his second chapter that, and I quote from verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. In other words, the apostles believed it was the last time and they thought that the end was much closer than it actually was. And just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now many Antichrists have been born from which we know that it is the last hour. They came out from us, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us, but so that they would be made manifest that they are not all from of us. Yet you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because any lie is not from of the truth. And in 1 John chapter 4, from verse 1, Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into society. By this you know the Spirit of God. Each spirit which professes that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh is from of God. And each spirit which does not profess Yahshua is not from of God. And this is the Antichrist, whom you have heard that it comes and is already now in society. You are from of Yahweh, children, and you have prevailed over them, because he who is in you, Yahweh in us, the Spirit of God in us, is greater than he who is in society. Christ is greater than the prince of this world. They are from of society. For this reason, from of society or from of the world, they speak and society hears them. We are from of Yahweh. He knowing, Yahweh hears us. He who is not from of Yahweh does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. John was talking about embodied spirits. He wasn't talking about disembodied spirits. In the first centuries of Christianity, the gospel certainly made manifest who the children of God were. As Paul even told 
the people that he wrote his epistles to that they were proving the gospel by accepting it. The gospel certainly made manifest who the children of the adversary were. For those who were born contrary to the law of God are his natural enemies. And that includes all of the bastard races. It includes all of the races of Canaan, and it, it includes all of the bastard races anywhere else. Paul taught these same things in a different manner in Romans chapters 9 through 11. While Peter and Jude identify the enemy by their profession, John tells us also. But John also describes the problem in genetic terms. They came out from us, but they were not of us. They were born of the world. They weren't born of the spirit. Cults come and go. Cults come and go all the time. False religions, false ideologies come and go all the time, but genes are passed down through the generations, as it says here, from of old. Verse 4. For if Yahweh did not spare the messengers who had done wrong or who had sinned, but having cast them into Tartarus, into a pit of darkness, he had delivered them being kept for judgment. This word Tartarus has caused a lot of, um, a, a lot of disputation, and we'll get into that shortly. The King James Version here has chains of darkness rather than a pit of darkness, and, and the differences in the manuscripts all of the oldest of the codices, the, 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 the um, codices known as the Great Uncials, have the word Seroys, which means into a pit, while the majority text, some later manuscripts, and one, one ancient papyri, papyrus, P, identified as P72, which dates to the 3rd or 4th century, which would make it older than all of the Great Uncials, they have... Sairahis, which means in chains, and, and the words are very similar. It, it's only a difference in a couple of vowels, right? And an O-I-S instead of an A-I-S and an E-I instead of an I. And, and the manuscripts being difficult to choose from, I have taken the translation and, and accepted Sirois, which is into a pit, and, and mostly because I base my decision upon the meaning of the verb tatarao. That, that's that that o o short o long o ending in Greek is difficult. Tatarao, as well as the fo the the following the uncles which chose to read that that the um it may well be in chains of darkness and and then that would agree with Jude if we choose to follow the the um. The ancient papyri and the several later manuscripts, which in this case have just as much weight because of the antiquity of, of the papyri. To cast someone or something into Tartarus is the literal, literal meaning of the verb Tartarao. T-A-R-T-A-R-O-O -O is, is the, the first person indicative singular of the verb. That's the dictionary form. Peter's use of the word disturbed some of the overly pious 
Christians of subsequent generations, and it still does today. Those who do not understand why Peter employed a word which was popular from the pagan Greek poets in order to describe events which were perceived as if they should have been known exclusively to the Hebrews. In other words, a lot of later Christians became offended at this use of this word in, in to Peter. And, and for that reason, that, that's one of the reasons that some of them used to reject to Peter as being an authentic epistle, which is absolutely ridiculous. And to me, they show their, their own lack of knowledge when they do that. The following note on the writings of Hippolytus give us one glimpse into the debate among scholars in reference to Peter's use of this word. And, and the editors of the Antinicene Ante Fathers, the, the, the edition of the church writers, the, the early church writers, those who existed before the Nicene Council of, of 330 AD, the, the editors take um, they, they actually defend Peter. And, and the note reads thus. This, is to, um, this note is a, a note which was made in Hippolytus's elucidations from the editor's note to section 18 of, of that work, which is only in fragments. And it says, I am a little surprised at the innocent statement of the learned translator that Dr. Wordsworth justifies Hippolytus' use of this word. It must have occurred to every student of the Greek Testament that St. Peter justifies this use in the passage quoted by Wordsworth, which, would, which one would think must be self-suggested to any theologian reading our author's text. In short, Hippolytus quotes the second edition, the, the second epistle of St. Peter, when he uses the other, this otherwise startling word, now, they consider Peter's use of this word startling, but the editors of Hippolytus and, and the Antinicene Fathers defend it, and, and it shows that this scholar, scholarly contention over Peter's use uh, of this word, which is made famous by the, by the pagan Greek poets, right? They go on to say that Josephus also employs it, and he does, it was familiar to the Jews they have, or actually to the Judeans, right? And the apostle had no scruple in adopting a word which proves the Gentile world acquainted with a Gehenna as well as a Sheol. And, and um, I said, well, well, they, of course, don't know what a Gentile is if they fell over one, right? It, it's... Um, the, the, the pagan nations and, and all of the nations outside of Israel, of ancient Israel, were indeed pagan nations, and the Old Testament tells us that. The Old Testament tells us that the Israelites were practicing paganism, and for that reason, they were all run off from the ancient kingdom by God. And, and he used the Assyrians and, and the Babylonians as, as part of his vehicle by which to do that. that now, um, well, when we look at the dispersions of ancient Israel, and we know where they are. We know where they are from our classical histories. It can be proven where they are, beyond doubt. And when we look at this, we find people practicing paganism, right? Well, well of course they're practicing paganism. 
And, and of course, they, they've taken many of their Hebrew stories with them. What is most often overlooked is that the Greeks had to get the idea for the concept that the word Tartarus reflects. They had to get that idea from somewhere. Discussing 1 Peter chapter 3 here several weeks ago, it was demonstrated from the writings of various ancient branches of our race that practically every branch of our race had at one time or another expressed in their earliest writings the belief in an underworld abode of the dead where the spirits of the dead awaited judgment. They also expressed the belief in a heaven Mentioned explicitly were stories not only from among the Greeks, such as from Book 11 of the Odyssey, where, where Odysseus descends into Tartarus and has conversations with the spirits of the dead, as portrayed by Homer, right? But, but also stories from the Sumerians, from the Assyrians, and from the Germanic Edda. Scholars who are partial to the Jews posit their views with the false presumption that the Jews alone had any knowledge of those things exhibited in the Old Testament, such as the existence of God as creator, or the existence of a heaven, or the existence of a hell. Yet in truth, the real Israelites, who first had these biblical accounts, were not Jews at all. But they were just as Aryan as the rest of the Aryans, who also had accounts and myths and writings of these things, where with the influences of paganism, they quickly became corrupted among the other branches of our race. Peter's use of the verbal form of Tartarus, Tartarao, is entirely natural to the scripture, since Tartarus represents the same meaning as the Hebrew word Sheol, the underworld abode of the dead. Now, now, many, um, you know, the word Gehenna, I'm going to take an aside because the, the editors of, of Hippolytus in the Ante Nicene Fathers mentioned Gehenna, that the, the Gentile world was acquainted with a Gehenna as well as a Sheol. Well, well the entire um, Aryan race was acquainted with the idea of Gehenna. There's no doubt. It's, it's, I've made many of the citations here which demonstrate that. Well, well uh, of a Sheol. Sheol is the underworld abode of the dead. The Germans called it Niflheim. And, and Niflheim, I am sure, comes from Hebrew, because Nifel means to fall, and a heim is a home, and Niflheim is the home of the fallen. Got that? Nifel is a Hebrew word, which means to fall. Niflheim is the home of the fallen. There's a little doubt. The Greeks had Hades. The Assyrians and, 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 and the Babylonians and the Sumerians all had the netherworld, the underworld, and, and they described it as being below the, the earth, and, and it was the place where the, the dead spirits went. But Gehenna it is, a, it is a word that's... That, that's um, sometimes abused, right? Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament. The word Gehenna is a Greek, it's really a Hellenization of the Greek word geis, 
which means um, land, and the S is dropped when that word is used as a prefix. And, and in this case, the prefix is henna or henam and, and in Hebrew, and geis henna or gehenna is the land of Hinnom. And in the land of Hinnom, well, that's where in, in the ancient Old Testament, that's where they, they sacrificed children to Moloch. That's where they burned sacrificial victims and, and, and in, in the pagan ancient Israel, and, and it became synonymous with the land of destruction. In later times, it was said that the people of Jerusalem burnt their trash there because the land was defiled and it wasn't good for much else. So they used that as a place to burn their trash. So when Christ talks about Gehenna, it's really only an allegory for destruction. It's really not a, a, a place, uh, mythical or, 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 um, or, or having anything to do with the afterlife. It, it just, it's just an allegory for destruction. If you're going to Gehenna, you're basically um, going to the lake of fire. You're, 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 it's an allegory for destruction. That's all it is. So Peter uses this word Tartarus, and, and he uses the verbal form of it, Tartarao, which means to, to cast one into Tartarus. And that was one of the reasons for, for a lot of the disputes over this epistle. They couldn't imagine a Christian using such a pagan Greek word. Well, when in fact the word's not pagan at all because the idea is fully rooted in the Bible, and that's where the Greeks got it from because the Greeks were amongst the dispersions of the children of Israel. And, and they would have brought that their, um, that their scriptures, they would have brought their memory of their scriptures with them, and they would have mythologized those memories. And, and that's exactly what happened. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if Yahweh did not spare the messengers who had done wrong, but having cast them into Tartarus, into a pit of darkness, he had delivered them being kept for judgment. Now, I know I just read that, that, that verse, but I have another aspect of that verse to talk about, so I had to read it again. Jude 6, And the messengers, not having kept their first dominion, but having forsaken their own habitation, are left under darkness in everlasting bindings for the judgment of the great day. It certainly cannot be said that the book of Enoch, which is known generally as one Enoch, that we have today is perfect. I would not say that. Rather, I am persuaded that it has probably been heavily redacted throughout the centuries. Yet some form of Enoch or another certainly seems to have been the primary reference for the words of both Peter here and Jude, where Jude discusses these same things in his epistle. And while Peter is referring to its contents, it, he's referring to things which are found in the Enoch literature and, and not in the Old Testament, not, not as, as um, fully as they are in Enoch, that's for sure. Jude 
in his epistle makes direct quotations of of parts of the of one Enoch, actually of of six or eight verses of, of Judah, right from one Enoch. While there are other references and allusions in the Enoch literature and in one Enoch to the events being described by Peter here in this epistle and by Jude in his, I'm going to quote one Enoch chapter ten, and this is from the translation that, that's well known by R. H. Charles. And I'll start with verse 1. Then said the Most High, the Holy and Great One spoke and sent Uriel to the son of Lamech and said to him, Go to Noah and tell him in my name, Hide thyself and reveal to him the end that is approaching, that the whole earth will be destroyed. The son of Lamech is Methuselah, right? Oh, oh. I'm sorry, the son of Lamech is Noah. The son of Lamech is Noah. I'm confused. That the whole earth will be destroyed, and a deluge is about to come upon the whole earth and will destroy all that is on it. And now instruct him that he may escape and his seed may be preserved for all the generations of the world. And again, Yahweh said to Raphael, Bind Azazel. Hand and foot, and, and we have to note this name of Zazzle because we're going to discuss it later. Bind a Zazzle, hand and foot, and cast him into the darkness, and make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and cast him therein, and place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him abide there forever, and cover his face, that he may not see light. And on the day of the great judgment, he shall be cast into the fire and heal the earth which the angels have corrupted and proclaim the healing of the earth that they may heal the plague then, and that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and have taught their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. And to Gabriel, and, and that's an important line, right? To Azazel ascribe all sin. Now, now, I'm not going to quote it here, but there are several times throughout the book of Enoch what, where um, Pericope's describing the sin of Azazel, and, 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 and they say, blame it all on Azazel. And, and that phrase occurs several times in the Enoch literature. Blame it all on Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. And to Gabriel said the Lord, proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of fornication. Now, now there's a certain Christian identity pastor running around right now saying, oh, it's not the bastard's fault that he's a bastard. Um, God won't hurt the bastards. He'll, he'll save them too. And, and this clown's saying that. But, well, this says, proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of fornication and destroy the children of fornication and destroy the children of the watchers from amongst men and cause them to go forth and send them one against the other that they may destroy each other in battle for length of days shall they have not. Of course, I don't believe this is fulfilled yet if we accept this as a prophecy. And no request that they or their fathers 
make of thee shall be granted unto their fathers on their behalf. For they hope, in, in other words, you can't save your bastard children. It's not going to happen. If your children are bastards, they have no future. They shall not see the kingdom of God, right? For they hope to live an eternal life, and that each one of them will live 500 years. And the Lord said unto Michael, Go, bind Semyaza and his associates who have united themselves with women, so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when their sons have slain one another, and they have seen the destruction of their beloved, of their beloved ones, bind them fast for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of their judgment and of their consummation, till the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. In those days, and, and we await that day, right? In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire, the lake of fire, and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined forever. And whosoever shall be condemned and destroyed will from thenceforth be bound together with them to the end of all generations, and destroy all the spirits of the reprobate and the children of the watchers. In, in, in other places, the book of Enoch says that demons and evil spirits came from the children of, of the bastards, the, the mixed races. And destroy all the spirits of the reprobate and the children of the watchers, because they have wronged mankind. Destroy all wrong from the face of the earth, and let every evil work come to an end. And let the plant of righteousness and truth appear, and it shall prove a blessing. The works of righteousness and truth shall be planted in truth and joy forevermore. And then all the righteous shall escape, and they shall live till they beget thousands of children. And all the days of their youth and their old age shall they complete in peace. And then shall the whole earth be tilled in righteousness, and shall all be planted with trees and full of blessing. And all the desirable trees shall be planted on it, and they shall plant vines on it, and the vine which they plant thereon shall yield wine in abundance. And as for all the seed which is sown thereon, each measure of it shall bear a thousand, and each measure of olives shall yield ten presses of oil, and cleanse thou the earth from all oppression, and from all unrighteousness, and from all sin, and from all godlessness, and all the uncleanness that is wrought upon the earth, destroy from off the earth. And all the children of men shall become righteous, and all nations shall offer adoration, and shall praise me, and all shall worship me, and the earth shall be cleansed from all defilement, and from all sin, and from all punishment, and from all torment, and I will never again send them upon it from generation to generation, and forever. I must say that the events of Genesis chapter 6, and as they are also described here in Enoch, and this, you know, the apostles, and especially Jude, quoted from Enoch, and, and when I cover the epistle of Jude forthcoming, I will make the exact citations that Jude quoted from. I only quoted this tonight to, to um, show the general tone of the book of, the, of one Enoch and, and what it contained, and, and chapter 10 is probably a good chapter for, for elucidating that. 
So, so that's why I quoted chapter 10. I must say that the events of Genesis chapter 6, and as they are also described here in Enoch, are not necessarily the only sins of the fallen angels. Other sins are mentioned elsewhere, even in Enoch, such as the miscegenation of these angels with all kinds of the beasts of the creation. Rather, these particular sins are mentioned here as an example, as Peter is pointing them out. For as soon as Adam was placed into the Garden of Eden, there was already the serpent described as the adversary or Satan in Revelation chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 10, who was also described as the tree of knowledge of good and evil as opposed to the tree of life, the race of the fallen angels as opposed to the Adamic race of God. Where it is evident that the broader term describes that entire race of angels, as they are called, which revolted from God at some point in the distant, in the distant past, which is what Revelation chapter 12 is describing, which is why Christ used the past tense when he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven. And he connected that event in Luke 10.18 directly to his statements in Luke 10.19, where he told the apostles that they would have power over all serpents and scorpions. Well, the serpents and scorpions are Satan. They are that race of fallen angels, as they're called, and their offspring. They are the adversary, which is what Satan means. Note in, in verse 8 of 1 Enoch chapter 10 where it says, And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. That name, Azazel, appears in the King James Version of the Old Testament. It appears in the Old Testament four times. All four times are in Leviticus chapter 16. However, in the King James Version, it's translated as scapegoat on all four occasions. And, and I'll read those occasions. Leviticus 16.8, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azazel. Yahweh's goat was sacrificed. The other goat was led out into the wilderness. And Leviticus, Leviticus 16, 9 and 10. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which Yahweh's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. It may be read, and to let him go into the wilderness for his asshole. And apparently there is more to some scriptures than what is generally perceived. Angels, described as watchers, as we saw here in Enoch, are also mentioned by that title in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, which leads me to cite another reference from pagan Greek writings. As I wrote in my paper, available on Christogenia, the problem with Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, and I quote here, the word also appears 
In a similar context, in a very unlikely place, at least it's unlikely to the casual observer and to those who are unschooled in Israel identity. In the Greek poet Hesiod's poem entitled Works and Days, lines 252 through 255, and I quote, For upon the bounteous earth, Zeus has thrice 10,000 spirits, watchers of mortal men, and these keep watch on judgments and deeds of wrong as they roam, clothed in mist all over the earth. Now, now this, I, I wouldn't build my religion on this statement from, from an ancient pagan Greek poet, right? But it helps to demonstrate that the shared concept of Tartarus between the Greeks and the Hebrews is not a lone coincidence, because they also obviously had a shared concept of the watchers, the angels of God, who supervised over, over the judgments of men on the earth. That's exactly what, um, how Daniel portrays it. That's how Enoch portrays it. And that's how the pagan Greek poet Hesiod portrays it in Works and Days, which is one of his more famous poems. Another one of his famous poems is Theogony. And I would say that if you ever really wanted to know what Paul meant, by vain genealogies, you should read Theogony by Hesiod, because that's exactly what Paul meant. That's exactly what Paul was referring to when he talked about vain genealogies. So, so the Greek and Hebrew myths, the, the Greek myths and, and the Hebrew Bible, they, they have a lot in common. And there's a lot more than that, but we'll leave it at that. It's not a mistake that Peter used a word like Tartarus, which is equivalent to, to, the, um, to, the, Greek, to the Hebrew Sheol. And, and defenders of the Jews, they, they want to hold the Jews as distinct from all the other peoples of, of the Mediterranean, as if they were special. Well, well, we should know that the Jews are the children of Edom, and the ancient Hebrews were indeed white, and, and they shared a much wider and, and similar culture with all of the white families of the Genesis 10 nations spread throughout the Mediterranean and, and Mesopotamia. 2 Peter 2, verse 5. And he did not spare of the old society, but he had kept Noah, the eighth proclaimer of righteousness, having brought a deluge upon the society of the impious, in this verse, the reading in the King James Version of the Bible is absurd, where it says, and I'll quote the first half of it, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. That's an absurd reading. Noah was not the eighth person. And, and if you examine the King James, you'll see that the word person is in italics, right? Well, which they, that they indicate means that they added the word to the text. Well, whenever you see those words in the italics in King James verses, you, you should know that you, you're probably getting hoodwinked because quite often that's the case. It's not always the case. Sometimes it's, it's necessary for English, but usually it's not. Also in the King James Version, the indefinite article, the word a or a, right? A preacher of righteousness. That was also added to the text. It doesn't exist in Greek. It never does. 
Often we have to supply it, but not always. The Geneva Bible also added the word person to the text. Noah the eighth person. And the New American Standard Version is far worse. It, again, it borders on criminal. It discards the word eighth, or eight in the King James, or, or eighth, right, eighth, and, and adding the phrase, with seven others, save Noah with seven others, which is not even a translation. It's really more of a wayward commentary. The Greek word agdos, and, and some people think that it says eighth because there were eight people on the ark. The Greek word agdos, or eighth, is an ordinal number. It's not a cardinal number. A cardinal number which would be octo, right? Eight. That's a cardinal number. An ordinal number is like a counting number, first, second, third, fourth. Well, agdos is the Greek word here, and that means eighth. And they knew the difference between an ordinal and a cardinal number. So this is not talking about how many people were saved in a flood, and I've seen that from some commentators. The words proclaimer in, in this verse, in the Greek, the words proclaimer or preacher and eighth are both in the accusative case. And the adjective, eighth, modifying the noun, the two must be understood as a single unit intending to describe the subject Noah. While the words are not adjacent in Greek, they bracket the words for Noah and of righteousness. And that's not an uncommon device in Greek. It signifies that the order of the word signifies that the entire phrase must be understood as a single unit. The text, the Greek text in this verse, clearly states that Noah was the eighth proclaimer of righteousness. I would assert that most translators and commentators cannot understand how or why that may be. And so they make their own assumptions, and they pervert the translation into something that it does not state. It is now important to show what preacher of righteousness means. And we can do that here. We can begin by counting the patriarchs from Adam. Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, not to be confused with the cursed Canaan, right? This is a good Canaan. Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. That's ten. Abel is not counted because he was never a patriarch. Now, since Enoch and Lamech were both outlived or outlasted on earth by their fathers, neither of them ever fulfilled the role of the living head patriarch. On earth, they didn't fulfill that role because they weren't around to inherit it. Their fathers outlasted them. Enoch was taken by God, and Lamech died several years before his father Methuselah died. Therefore, there were only eight head patriarchs of the Adamic race up to and counting Noah.
So that is what the term preacher of righteousness must mean. Noah was the eighth proclaimer of righteousness because he was the eighth chief patriarch of the Adamic line. Now, of course, Cain was also discounted since he wasn't even an Adamic patriarch or an Adamic man, and, and therefore he can't even be considered righteous. Now, I believe, and, and, and this may be seen as conjecture by some, there is some apocryphal literature to support this position. And, and there's other New Testament indications, but th this is the best um, that I have for a proof. I believe that that preacher of righteousness, that was a position distinguished by men in the days before Abraham, and, and it fell to the, the oldest living patriarch, and it was also called the priesthood of Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. Now, that may be seen as conjecture, but that's my conjecture. That's the way it is. Now, now Paul took advantage of the fact that the one Melchizedek appearing in Scripture has no record of his genealogy or, or what he was or where he came from, and Paul drew an allegory with Christ taking advantage of that facet of Scripture. And, and that's fine, but Paul was making an allegory and, and using Melchizedek as a type for Christ, which is also fine because Christ, of course, has no real parents. He only has earthly, well, well an earthly mother and, and um, Yahweh God, and, and basically Yahweh God came in his own flesh, and, and he's his own son, right? Well, well um, Paul took advantage of that for an allegory, and, and, and that's what I believe, and, and that's all well and good. I don't think that conflicts one bit with, with my assertion concerning Mel, Melchizedek. And I believe that the Melchizedek, there's actually apocryphal literature in, in the Book of the Bee, the Book of Adam and Eve, that insists that Melchizedek was Shem. And, and Melchizedek at the time of Abraham was Shem. Well, well, that's apocryphal literature, and it's spurious, and it's wrong. And if we examine the correct chronology of the Hebrew Bible in the Septuagint, Shem and Abraham by no means lived at the same time. And, and they couldn't have. And I believe that Shem was, was a Melchizedek, but he wasn't the Melchizedek because he was at one time the oldest living patriarch after his father Noah died. He would have been the ninth preacher of righteousness, right? Well, well he wasn't um, the Melchizedek at the time of Abraham. I believe Abraham's brother was, and Abraham's brother actually did accompany him to the land of Canaan. That, that's recorded in Scripture. But, but that's besides the point. It, it really, my, my, um, my conjecture that the preacher of righteousness is Melchizedek doesn't really matter at all. We see what preacher of righteousness means when we realize that Noah was the eighth Adamic patriarch. That, that of course, is much more important. And that's what this means here. And the Greek definitely says eighth preacher or eighth 
proclaimer of righteousness. It does not say the eighth person, uh, a preacher of righteousness, right? That, that's, not, that, that's absolutely contrary to what the Greek says. The society of the impious, mentioned by Peter here, are those Adamic people who died in the flood. These are the spirits in prison to whom Christ preached the gospel, which Peter informs us of in 1 Peter chapter 3, which Isaiah prophecies in his prophecy in chapter 61, and which Paul also alludes to in Ephesians chapter 4. These people who died in the flood, who are indeed not excelled in sin by the rest of our race, had an opportunity to hear the gospel and repent thousands of years after their passing from this world. Likewise, Peter says at 2 Peter 3.9, that the prince or the Lord does not delay the promise as some regard delay, but has forbearance for us not wishing for any to be destroyed, but that all should have space for repentance. As it is said elsewhere in Scripture, all Israel shall indeed be saved, and there is no scriptural exception. 2 Peter 2, verse 6. And the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, burning to ashes, he had condemned to destruction, having been set forth for an example of those who are going to be impious. This, this is a very telling passage here, this little verse. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example for those who are going to be impious. And we'll discuss this again next week when I cover chapter 3 of this epistle. Peter, speaking of the future, we must remember this when we get to chapter 3, where in verse 7, Peter says... The heavens and the earth are being preserved by the same word, being kept for fire for a day of judgment and destruction of the impious men. Here, with the example of Sodom and Gomorrah being used to warn those who are going to be impious, Peter indicates what fire he meant in chapter 3 of the epistle. And, and we'll remember that next week when we discuss that. It, it's, to me, it's a, a valuable clue as to Peter's intention. Verse 7, And he delivered the righteous Lot, who had been oppressed by the licentious conduct of the lawless. For, and, and verse 8 is a parenthetical statement. It says, For with sights and reports, the righteous one, meaning a Lot, Dwelling among them, meaning the licentious, day by day tormented a righteous soul with their lawless deeds. Here Peter is clearly telling us that Lot tormented his own soul by living among a bunch of lawless perverts. Many of us today in Christian identity feel that same way, having no choice but to live in this corrupted modern world. Yet when we purposely choose to engage with the world, especially those of us who live in the big cities, I know Rick Tars in, in the forum right now, and, and I spent my share of time in New York City. I don't need to see it again. We torment our own souls 
by doing so. And, and the results for Lot was not appealing. The results for Lot wasn't appealing at all. Lot chose to live in that city. Although Lot himself was righteous, he lost his wife. He lost all of his family except for two daughters and the destruction of those cities. That, too, is an example for us today. You want to live in a city, yeah, you're begging for it. And after that, the children which Lot had were born of incest upon the devices of those daughters who were the only family he had left. Now, Lot was a righteous man, and those things happened to him. Imagine what's going to happen to the unrighteous when Yahweh, our God, visits Sodom and Gomorrah again, and he will. That these bastard Jew, homosexual, deviant faggots in New York and in Tel Aviv and in Washington and in Miami and in Los Angeles, the God of creation is not going to let them carry on with their perversion forever. It's just not going to happen. So you don't want to be Lot. You don't want to be the righteous guy stuck in Sodom and Gomorrah at the Day of Judgment. Verse 9. The prince knows to deliver the pious from trial, but to keep the unrighteous being punished for a Day of Judgment, and especially those going after the flesh with desires of defilement and despising authority, presumptuous adventurers, not fearing honor or, or not fearing glory or effulgence, they blaspheme. Jude, verse 8, speaking of the same people, says this, whereas likewise also these dreamers indeed defile the flesh while they reject authority and they blaspheme honor or glory or refulgence. That word is a pretty ambiguous term. The enemies of God, as we can observe in our modern world, blaspheme everything which is good and noble and honorable. And they seek to create their own sick, perverted version of creation. That's what they're doing right now in New York and Tel Aviv and, and all those other large cities, right? That they're seeking to per create their own sick, disgusting caricature of creation. Many people, even in Christian Israel identity, read passages such as this and imagine that the children of God can go into the lake of fire. That is the leaven of the Pharisees. That can be established right in the pages of Josephus, where the Catholic idea of punishment and reward are seen to originate. The Catholics got their idea of heaven, hell, punishment in the afterlife for bad boys. That, that they got that right from the Pharisees. That's evident right in Josephus's description of the beliefs of the Pharisees. That's the leaven, or a part of the leaven of the Pharisees. By this, what, when people take this position, even in Christian identity, they show their Catholic Church influence, and that they do not understand the context of the Scripture. The Apostle John says in the third chapter of his first epistle, and I quote from verse 7, Children, let no one deceive you. He who is bringing about justice is just, even as he, meaning God, is just. 
He who is creating error is from of the false accuser or the devil. All the sin is blamed on Azazel. Remember that. Since the false accuser errs from the beginning, for this the Son of Yahweh has been made manifest in order that he would do away with the works of the false accuser. Each who has been born from of God does not create wrongdoing because his seed abides in him and he is not able to do wrong. Because from of Yahweh he has been born. By this are manifest the children of Yahweh and the children of the false accuser. We have in the book of Enoch, one Enoch, a lengthy description of the sins of men. And how it was that the fallen angels had taught men all manner of sin. That it was they who had introduced those things into Adamic society. Upon close examination, it is evidence throughout history that white Adamic peoples have sought to establish moral societies based upon a sense of justice and the rule of law wherever they have settled. No other race does that. And the same pattern occurs repeatedly when the international Jew creeps in and begins to pander to the weak in order to corrupt society. These are the presumptuous adventurers referred to by Peter. The phrase describes perfectly the Jews of today. The phrase describes perfectly the enemies of God, who stop at nothing to pervert and corrupt all society. Since nothing shames them, they are not afraid of participating in any and every disgusting act of perversion. These are the creators of sin, as opposed to the otherwise innocent who are merely entrapped by sin. And John makes that distinction in his first epistle. I have a paper written on that, sin and the first epistle of John. John says that he who is born of God does not sin. However, when he does sin, he has an intercessor in Yahshua Christ. Because we all sin, but we don't all create sin. There's a difference. There's a difference between the, the, the idiot who has a few too many beers and, 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 and the, the marketers and, and the panderers or who, who have enticed us into that. There's a difference between the, the, the weak man who falls for a prostitute and the pimp who runs the prostitution ring, who entices weak men to fall to prostitutes. There's a difference between the weak man who sees an escape in a narcotic and the manufacturer of the narcotic who entices weak men everywhere One John two one, one John chapter two verse one. My children, I write these things to you in order that you do not do wrong. And if one should do wrong, we have an advocate with the Father, 
the righteous Yahshua Christ. The entire Adamic society, all of Israel, has an advocate for their sin. Yet, those who are outside of the covenants, those who are not covered by the blood of Christ, all of the children of the devil, so to speak, because they are all children of the devil, have no advocate. They don't have an advocate. Therefore, Paul says of the unrepentant Israelite sinner in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, deliver such a wretch to the adversary for destruction of the flesh in order that the spirit may be preserved in the day of the prince. Surely that sinner shall repent when he faces his Lord and Master at the judgment. And just as certainly all of those spirits of those people who died in the flood when Christ went and preached to those spirits in the prison, they also repented. Verse 11, where the messengers, being greater in power and ability, do not bring against them a judgment for blasphemy as appropriate. I have a translation note here, of course. The King James Version always translates the word kurios as a noun and renders it as Lord, while it is a noun when it is used as a substantive, which is most often accompanied with the definite article, the word is primarily an adjective, and it means having power over, or having authority over, ordained, appointed, regular, proper, legitimate, valid, authorized, etc., the phrase paracurio is not a substantive. It doesn't mean from the Lord. And I have rendered it to read as appropriate. It means as appropriate. It means according to what is valid. I've rendered it as appropriate in several places, not only here, but also in Ephesians 6, 8, and in 2 Timothy 1, 18. So here it is, as appropriate, which is para curio. Jude 9, we have a very similar passage. Yet Michael, the chief messenger, when contending with the false accuser, he argued over the body of Moses. I'll talk a lot about that when I get to Jude did not venture to bring a judgment for blasphemy, but said, the prince should censure you. The angels would not judge, meaning condemn, meaning enact that judgment that they're worthy of. The angels of God would not judge the enemies of God, even though they certainly did deserve that judgment, Michael said. The prince or the Lord should should censure you. The angels wouldn't judge his enemies because, as Paul had written in Romans 12, 19, and I quote, Not taking vengeance yourselves, beloved, but rather you must give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will requit, says Yahweh. Requit, meaning payback. Paul seems to have been paraphrasing Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, which is part of the 
Song of Moses, and I will, uh, I will quote that, to me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Well, it's at hand in the eyes of God, but not in the eyes of man. We await the judgment of his enemies all the time, right? Isaiah 63, 4, For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Here's Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw the heaven having been opened, and behold, a white horse, and he sitting upon it, faithful and true. And he judges in righteousness and makes war. Now his eyes are as flames of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, many crowns, having a name inscribed which no one knows except him. And he is cloaked with a garment dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of Yahweh. And the armies in heaven follow him upon white horses, clothed with clean white linen. And a sharp sword comes from out of his mouth, in order that with it he may smite the nations. And he shall shepherd them with an iron staff. And he shall trample the vat of the wine of the wrath of the anger of Yahweh Almighty. And he has upon his garment and upon his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Sovereign of Sovereigns. We cannot force the moment. Revelation 17, 17, our kingdom was handed over to the beast. Revelation 19, 11, the judgment of God is effected in the earth. We're somewhere in between that period right now waiting for Babylon to fall. We cannot force the moment. We would like to. We're all impatient. We would love to see the enemies of our God destroyed. But the day is coming when the trumpet does sound, and when it does, it will be unmistakably clear when the remnant of Israel hears the call described in Micah 4.13, Arise and thresh! O daughter of Zion, that's us. For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people. And I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. We must wait and follow Christ our King. 2 Peter 2.12 But these, having been born as natural, irrational animals into destruction and corruption, in which blaspheming they are ignorant in their corruption, they also shall perish. The verb, geneo, that verb occurs about a hundred times in the New Testament, and 40 of those are in the genealogy of Christ given in Matthew chapter 1 where it says, begot, 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 40 times. Outside of Matthew 1, it appears most often in John, of people, the verb literally means to be born. And the King James Version translates it that way often, about 38 times. Yet here, quite strangely, the King James Version renders the word as 
made. I don't know why. I, 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 well, I do know why, but it, it's, um, it, it sure, surely should not have been, right? Here the King James Version translates a verb, which means to be born a hundred times in the Bible, and they translate it as made. Of course, in reality, people are not made outside of being born. That's how people are made. There's no other way. However, reading the King James Version, one may get the errant impression that salvation and destruction are somehow drawn along lines other than the obvious racial divisions of creation and corruption. That's what we have. We have creation and we have corruption. You're either a part of the creation or you're a part of the corruption. One is either a son of Yahweh created in his image or one is a bastard and your father is the devil, the creator of bastards. The New American Standard Edition actually translates this word correctly here. And I'll cite that version of 2 Peter 2.12 simply to corroborate my own translation of the word. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. As Paul talked about the vessels of mercy being the descendants of Jacob and the vessels of destruction being the descendants of Esau. We see here in Peter that there are people who are born as natural, irrational animals, not having the Spirit of God. And therefore, by the circumstances of their birth, they are certainly not ever to be candidates for Christianity, and none of them can ever be saved. John chapter 3, verse 3. Joshua Christ talking to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of God. From John's epistle. 1 John 4, chapter 4. You are from of Yahweh, children, and you have prevailed over them. The creation prevails over the corruption. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in society. They are from of society, of the world, right? For this reason, from of society they speak, and society hears them. In other words, they were created by the error which is in the world. We are from of Yahweh. He knowing Yahweh hears us. He who is not from of Yahweh does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth, the spirit of creation, and the spirit of deception, the spirit of the corruption. There were two classes of people in the world, those born of Yahweh, the Adamic race, and those born of the world. Unless a man is born from of Yahweh, a son of Adam, unless a man is born from above, 
he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. There is no, there are no exceptions to this scripture. None. Period. You're born of the creation or you're born of the corruption. Verse 13. Doing injustice to the wages of injustice. Regarding luxury of pleasure by day, stains and disgraces, reveling in their deceits, feasting together with you, having eyes full of adultery, and unable to cease from wrongdoing, enticing unstable souls, having hearts exercised for greediness, cursed children, the children of Canaan, right? The children of, of Cain. The children of Esau, they were all cursed. Abandoning, abandoning the straight road, they have wandered astray, following in the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor. Who had loved the wage of unrighteousness. But he had a rebuke for his own transgression. A dumb beast of burden with the voice of a man. We have a lot of beasts running around with the voices of men. A dumb beast of burden with the voice of a man, having spoken clearly, had curbed the derangement of the prophet. Jude 12, a very similar passage. These are spots in the, your feasts of charity, feasting together without fear, tending to themselves, clouds without water being carried away by the winds, Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead being uprooted. When they're dead physically, they don't have the Spirit of God. They're dead spiritually. Stormy waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness is kept forever. Fallen angels. Paul in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 27, he also warns about these people among us, eating with us who don't belong there, where he says, Consequently, whoever would eat the wheat bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. But a man must scrutinize himself, and thus, from of the bread let him eat, and from of the cup, let him drink. For he that is eating and drinking, eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not distinguishing the body, which means not distinguishing the body of Christ. For this reason, there are among you many feeble and sickly and plenty have fallen asleep. But if then we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. In other words, if we had remained a separate nation. But being judged by the prince, we are disciplined in order that we would not be condemned with the society. Those things that we share at our, at our tables, that is our communion. The, words, the word describes something which is shared in common. That's what communion means. The Greek word koinonia is something which is shared in common. We should not eat or drink nor share any of our charity 
with those who are not worthy of the covenant of our God, the blood of our prince. Those who are feasting with us, those who have gotten their way into the nations of Israel, but who are not of Israel, they are, as Peter says, spots in our feasts of charity, reveling in their deceits, feasting together with you. And they cause our transgression and calamity among us. They are cursed children, enticing unstable souls. The children of the cursed Cain and the cursed Canaan and the cursed Esau and all of the other non-Adamic natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, as even the King James Version reads 2 Peter 2.12 in part. In connection with these, the way of Balaam is mentioned here in verse 15. And in Jude, in, in the parallel passages, in Jude verse 11, it is called the way of Cain. And it is also called the error of Balaam. We see from the account in Numbers chapters 24 and 25 that Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites, to curse the children of Israel. But every time that he tried, he could only utter blessings. Then, failing to have the prophet curse Israel, we see that Balak had the woman of his tribe go out to seduce the men of Israel. That works every time, just about. But the entire account that Balaam had actually instructed Balak to do this is not related to us in the book of Numbers, except later on where it's alluded to in Numbers 31.16, where it says, and I quote, Behold, these caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass against Yahweh in the matter of Peor. And it was a plague among the congregation of Yahweh. Further details are filled in by later scriptures. And I'll quote Micah 6.5. O my people, remember now. And this is an important passage. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. From Shittim unto Gilgal. That you may know the righteousness of Yahweh. The righteousness of Yahweh. What did, what did Balaam the son of Beor answer him? The righteousness of Yahweh is foremost that we are not to race mix. And we see that clearly defined here in Scripture once we understand what Balaam consulted Balak. Because that is what the children of Israel had done, which Balak had enticed them to do. Because that was what Balaam counseled him to do. 2 Peter 2.15, here we have, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude 1.11, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Cain was race-mixed. And ran greedily after the error of Balaam. Balaam encouraged the children of Israel. He encouraged Balak to have them race-mixed and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now, the gainsaying of Korah was the introduction of strange fire, and, and that's symbolic. 
Yet it's really about rebellion from Yahweh by violating the precepts of the temple because Korah thought that he should have certain duties rather than abide by what Yahweh ordained through Moses. We can't have those of the priestly caste making up their own rules. Korah had to be destroyed, and he was. Revelation 2.14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. And here we can clearly see the references to a race-mixing event having taken place, which was counseled by Balaam as he taught Balak that way by which he could overcome the sons of Israel. Today, the Canaanite Jew uses that same method. We still haven't learned this lesson. Taking advantage of our own weaknesses to overcome us once again by encouraging us to race mix. And Paul also affirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he too explains that the crime behind this episode was one of fornication or race mixing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:8, neither should we commit fornication, just as some of them had committed fornication. That is what the trysts, that is what the unions between the children of Israel and the daughters of Moab were. They were fornication. And in one day, 23,000 had fallen. And Revelation 2.14, as we just saw, calls it fornication. Paul calls it fornication, tells us not to do it. Tells the Corinthians, who were Dorian Greeks, not to commit fornication, which is race mixing. There are other crimes, sexual crimes, which are also considered fornication, since fornication is any illicit sex, but here it clearly means race mixing, because that was what was going on between the Israelites and the Moabites. And Jude 7, in Jude's epistle, and Jude talks about the way of Cain, and he talks about the error of Balaam, Jude 7 defines fornication for us, where Jude says that it's the pursuit of different flesh. That word strange in Jude 7 is the Greek word heteros. It means different. Your wife is supposed to be bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. If your wife isn't of the same flesh as you, you're committing fornication. You're not married. You're fornicating. This was a direct reference where Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 10, 8, to that same episode that we see recounted in Numbers chapters 24 and 25. So we see the way of Balaam was the encouragement of the children of Israel to race mix. The Jews practice it well today. Phineas, as it is described in Numbers chapter 25, slew one of the principal men of the race, of the race mixers and the woman that he was caught with. And for that reason, the plague was stayed that day in Israel and Phineas was greatly rewarded by God because he slew the race mixers. I wouldn't encourage being like Phineas, although we would all love to, but we must know that vengeance belongs to our God, and it's going to come. 2 Peter 2, 17. 
These are streams without water and clouds being driven by a tempest for whom the the gloom of darkness is kept. Or in the King James Version, wells without water. Lord is still speaking of these same spots in our Feast of Charity. They are wells without water. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jude, in verse 12 of his epistle, refers to these same creatures as clouds without water, which is much the same thing. If they are broken cisterns, it is indeed because they are the result of race mixing. Jude says in verse 19, these are those making divisions, animals not having the spirit. That's the nature of the false prophets and the wolves in sheep's clothing among us. Verse 18, for uttering excessive vanity, they entice with the licentious desires of the flesh those nearly escaping who are returning to error. So we must always guard ourselves against the the enticements of lust. It's always what does us in first. And Peter warns that those of us entrapped in these things, nearly escaping, may easily backslide when enticed again. It must be kept in mind that we are all weak and we are all capable of sin. 1 John 1.8 If we should say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Yet, as we shall see below... If we are not sheep, we are expected to backslide. We are expected to sin. We must also look at our history and ask, who are the panderers of this age? Who is behind all of these enticements today? Who is the perverter of our society? The Jews run the perverted media. The Jews run the perverted porno houses. They're responsible for, they own 95% of this media. They, they're responsible for 95% of the porno industry, the brothels. They own the gambling halls. The Jews own Las Vegas. They run Las Vegas. They run Atlantic City. They run the perverted film industry and just about everything else, which entices our flesh and destroys our society. And they always have, for the most part, run all of those things. And they openly campaign to entice and to trap us in their sins. Proclaiming for themselves freedom, they become slaves of corruption. For by that which one is overcome, to this he is enslaved. 2 Peter 2.19 Free love, sexual liberation, universal suffrage, equality, freedom of choice were all slogans of the perverted Jew throughout the last several centuries, and there are probably a few I'm missing. Women's lib. Women's lib means having the Jew liberate our wives and our daughters from their clothing and from their husbands and their fathers and their brothers and from their chastity and from their decency. Doing those things, they are able to destroy our race. And most of our women have fallen for it. 
They proclaim freedom so they can become slaves to corruption. Christians are not free. Christians are bondmen to Christ. We have an obligation to our Creator. The Jews have convinced most of us that we are liberated and has liberated us from God. That is a great deception. The freedom that our founding fathers fought for was strictly an economic freedom and a freedom from the tyranny of men. They instituted a Christian nation and told us that if it remained so, we would keep it. We did not heed their warnings. John 8:34. Yahshua replied to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that he causing wrongdoing is a servant of wrongdoing. He creating sin is a servant of sin. There's no freedom in sin. You're in bondage to corruption. Paul explained that as we become, as we become slaves to sin, we become slaves to sin which we also subject ourselves to when we give in to the enticements of the flesh. Romans chapter 6. Did you not know that to whom you present yourselves as bondmen to obey, bondmen you are to whom you obey, either truly either of sin for death or of obedience for righteousness. But feel grateful to God that you were bondmen of sin, but you obeyed from the heart into which a form of instruction was transmitted. And having been liberated from sin, you become bondmen to righteousness. When we cave into sin, it enslaves us. And, and the proof of that is all throughout. It permeates our society today. 2 Peter 2.20 For if escaping the pollutions of society by the knowledge of our Prince and Savior, Yahshua Christ, and these being entangled again or overcome, the ends of them become worse than the beginnings. We have to bear in mind, as I stated in the first verses of this chapter, that Peter is talking generally of the people and allowing the gospel to separate the wheat from the tares. Peter indicates that Christ was certain when he said, my sheep hear my voice. And therefore, those who remain with the pollutions of society after hearing the truth of the gospel cannot be his sheep. While all of that is certainly true, today, in our age, it is not quite so simple. In Peter's time, the gospel was going out throughout the world undistorted. Today, very few of us actually have ever heard the truth. The trash emanating from modern Judeo so-called Christian churches is certainly not the truth. I don't care that they call it the gospel. It sure as hell is not the gospel. People are not being told the consequences of their sin. People are not being told the racial truths behind the mystery of iniquity and the mystery of righteousness. They're just not being told those things. Yet for those who have heard the truth, Paul says in Hebrews 10.26, for if we sin willfully, and many of us sin all the time, not willfully, 
For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Those people, it can be imagined, may suffer the most horrible trials in this world. Or as Peter says, they are not sheep in the first place. Paul says in Hebrews 12:8, but if you were without discipline of which you all have become partakers, then you were bastards and not sons. Verse 21, for it was better for them not having known the way of righteousness than they know turning away from the holy commandment having been delivered to them. But the truth of the proverb happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow being cleansed to rolling in mud. We have sheep, and, on, and then on the other hand, we have dogs and pigs. Of course, all of these things are allegories, but nevertheless represent literal truths. Those who reject Christ are naturally expected to be sinners. Those who are not sheep are expected are not expected to ever truly accept Christ, since they cannot keep his commandments. They do not have the guiding spirit within them. Paul said in Ephesians chapter five, therefore you must be imitators of Yahweh as beloved children, and walked in love just as Christ has also loved us, and surrendered himself on our behalf, an application and sacrifice to Yahweh for an essence of sweet aroma. But fornication, race mixing, and all uncleanness or greediness, you must not even specify among you, just as is suitable with saints. In other words, in a perfect world, we would be totally oblivious to the possibility of such disgusting things. And abusiveness and foolish speaking or ribaldry, which things are not fitting, but thanksgiving instead, ribaldry, that, that would be dirty jokes and other nasty things that we shouldn't repeat, right? This is known by you that any fornicator or unclean or greedy person who is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of the anointed and of Yahweh. And here we have seen Peter and Jude associate these things with the interlopers, those spots in our feasts of charity. No one must deceive you with empty words, for on account of these things the wrath of Yahweh comes upon the sons of disobedience, the spots in our feasts of charity, the, the broken cisterns. Therefore, you must not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but are now light in the prince. The gospel separates the dark from the light. The gospel separates the wheat from the tares all the time. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is in all goodness and justness and truth. Scrutinizing what is acceptable to the prince. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even reprove them. Christians must speak up when it's appropriate. For the things being done by them secretly, and, and I've seen way too much of this in my life, for the things being done by them secretly, 
it is disgraceful even to speak of. For that reason, Christ gave his instructions at Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. You should not give that which is holy to the dogs. Ted Whelan should not send Bibles to Nigeria. Nor should you cast your pearls before swine. Joe November should not go on Negro talk shows to preach the gospel. Lest they trample them with their feet, and turning, they would rend you to pieces. The dogs, the swine, they are all destined for the lake of fire. We can expect them to be sinners. We can expect them to do all of the foul and disgusting things that they do. For that reason alone, we have only one choice, to separate ourselves from them all. Thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow night. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow night. I'm going to make my mind up in the morning. Uh, I wrote an editorial for the Saxon Messenger this month. I apologize for the Saxon Messenger being late this month with the server crashes and, and, and the technical problems I had. It's almost ready, and, and hopefully it'll be out. The March issue of the Saxon Messenger will be out in the next couple of days, God willing, and, and I don't want to put pressure on, on the... Um, the invaluable person that I know that, that, that helps me get it together that will listen to this tomorrow. But hopefully it will be out soon. And, and we will have an April Saxon Messenger, God willing, in April. And thank you for listening. And praise Yahweh. I'll be here tomorrow night at 8 o'clock.